Today we want to discuss a prevalent problem that we have not just in our society but in our church as well. Uh, the problem is that this issue that we're going to discuss is sometimes uncomfortable, uh, and because it's uncomfortable, we sometimes just tend to ignore it. And so we're going to kind of look at that today. We're going to be in Judges uh, chapter 19 today, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up uh, there. And uh, we are continuing this series that we've entitled In Those Days, uh, looking at the last five chapters of the book of Judges. Uh, the uh, last five chapters of Judges are divided into really two different stories. Uh, last week, we kind of finished up that first set of stories um, dealing with the Levite, or Micah, and the Levite, and the idols, and Dan. Uh, and, and it had a focal point, and the focal point was the worship that Israel had during the period of the Judges. And the worship was pretty much whatever they wanted to worship. And so it led to uh, lots of idols being made, them worshiping in ways that God had not intended them to, uh, and things like that. Uh, this second story uh, is not going to deal with worship, but rather with justice. How is justice distributed? Uh, well, who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? Who gets to de decide what happens to lawbreakers? How do we deal with oaths that we have made? Uh, and so those are kind of the uh, underlying theme that is going on in these last three chapters. And I want us to uh, just start by reading the first couple of verses of this chapter uh, to kind of introduce the story to us. Uh, it says, In those days Israel had no king. Now Levi, who lived in the remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him, and she left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. I want to kind of stop, stop there just to kind of introduce what is going on. All right, the first thing that we notice is this, this uh, repeating refrain uh, throughout these chapters. In those days, Israel had no king. And we kind of mentioned it the last couple of times that we've read it, that it's not that Israel didn't have a king like King Saul or King David, but rather they weren't willing to acknowledge the king that they had. And because of that, uh, all these issues are arising. All right, because they're unwilling to acknowledge God as their king, uh, they are doing things as they see fit rather than as God sees fit. And we're introduced to a Levite and his concubine. And this really sounds really familiar to what we just read, right? We had a Levite who is from the land of Judah and the town of Bethlehem, and he's traveled and found a new home in the land of Ephraim. Uh, in this case, it's kind of reversed, right? We have a Levite who is living in the land of Ephraim, and he has taken a concubine from the land of Bethlehem. And it could be that these are the same guys, but there's enough differences in the story uh, to kind of assume that they're different people. Uh, this one probably actually, the story actually takes place uh, fairly early in the period of the Judges, even though it's at the end of the book, okay? Uh, it's just, it's not in chronological order, if we will, if, if we can say it that way. All right, and then we are also introduced to his concubine. And uh, the idea of concubine is kind of hard for us as modern, uh, in, in our modern mindset, right? Because we don't really have concubines anymore. And so I think it's important for us to, to understand what a concubine is, okay? Uh, it pr pretty much was a wife 
that didn't have all of the privileges that a wife had, okay? Uh, and that's kind of, again, this is kind of a hard concept sometimes to translate into our minds, all right? Uh, they, they were oftentimes uh, given just second-tier status, if you will, all right? They, they didn't have the same privileges. However, in the Hebrew culture, different than other cultures, a concubine's children uh, were given full heritage rights. So any child from the concubine uh, could inherit, uh, whereas in other cultures, if you had a child from a concubine, uh, they were just kind of tossed to the side. All right, and so, so that's kind of a little bit of a difference. Usually concubines in the Hebrew culture were taken as a second wife when the first wife was considered barren, like she was not going to have any children. And so in order to pass on the lineage, they would take on the second wife. A uh, lot of times concubines were slaves that were married. Okay? And so they are wives, if you will, uh, they're, but they're, they're, they were usually slaves. Okay? And so that's kind of, again, it's kind of a hard concept for us to understand, but it's kind of how it worked then. And so this Levi, he has this concubine maybe a slave, sometimes free women were considered concubines, maybe a second wife, we just don't know, because sometimes it could be your first wife that's a concubine, all right, and so it's just one of those things uh, that, that we have to understand, uh, and it's hard to sometimes, so he has a wife, she is a concubine, uh, and we're told in chap- verse 2 that she was unfaithful to him, and she left him, and so this is kind of the issue that I want us to to kind of address today, okay? Uh, It's the issue of lusts within God's people, all right? And maybe lust isn't even the right word. Maybe desire uh, is a better word, okay? Uh, Our culture is full of this desire for other people, right? All right, we we can, it doesn't take us very long to figure that out. You turn on the TV and almost any show nowadays uh, or commercials, they are using desire, lust, to kind of sell their point, because sex sells. And I say that not to say that, that TV or movies are, are evil and we shouldn't watch it, but just to recognize within our society, this has become a bigger and bigger issue. And it's really not, and, and, and this is how big, this is, this is how the problem has, has expanded, okay? Uh, there is this app that you can get on your, your uh, tablets, your devices, all right? And it's called Tinder. And basically what you do on this, this app is you set up a profile complete with a picture of yourself, and then you go and you kind of look at other people's profiles. And uh, if you look at them and you say, okay, I'd be interested in meeting you, all right, you swipe one way. And if you're like, no, no, I'm not that interested, you swipe the other way. So one swipe is yes, one swipe is no. If the other person swipes yes with you, you get connected. And a lot of people are using this app to more or less have one-night stands uh, with random people that they don't know. All right, there's another uh, website called Ashley Madison. And the, uh, the, the tagline for this company is this, life is short, have an affair. And people get on here and they're, they're supposed to be private, you don't know who they are, and they're trying to meet up with people who want to have affairs. I mean, that's, that's where our society is going. And the problem isn't just in our society, it's within the church as well. Uh, in 2015, uh, Ashley Madison actually had a hack, and someone published everybody's name that was on the website, or a, a large number of them. 
And what happened is when that list came out, what they found was there was over 400 church ministers and church leaders who were on that website, uh, who, who ended up resigning like the next week, right? All right, and, and the company itself published a self-study in which 25% of its members uh, proclaimed to be Christians going to church on a regular basis. And so this, this issue that's in our society uh, that, that of lust and of desire for other people, of things that we don't have and that we think we need to have, all right, it's not just an issue of our culture, it's an issue within the church. And so I have to ask this question, why should we care about this issue? Because I think this issue is something that we sometimes ignore and put off to the side, but I think it's an issue that is very important for us. And, and there's a couple of verses, I think, that kind of show us why. All right, one is First uh, John 2, uh, verses 15 through 17. It says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. All right, what we see in this this passage of scripture in the New Testament is that there's a separation between the church and the world. All right, we live in the world, but we should not be acting like the world. And the problems that the world has with this issue of desire and lust, it should not be within the church. And I understand that sometimes it's difficult to live surrounded by people who do not love God and who do not act like they even acknowledge who God is, and it's hard for us to live a completely different lifestyle when everyone else is living a certain way. I mean, we are creatures that love to follow the crowd, all right? And yet, John says we should not be acting like the world. Uh, John, he gives us three different categories of things that come from the world. He says the lust of the uh, flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All right, and, and pretty much any sin uh, that, that we commit can probably fall into these categories. And when we're talking about desire for other people, all right, and an unhealthy desire for, for someone of the opposite sex, all right, they easily fall into a couple of these categories, right? Maybe it's our eyes, and we just desire what we're seeing. Maybe it's our flesh, and we want to satisfy what's within ourselves. All right, and so we see that, that this is what the world produces, and John says that, that if people fall into these, if you're sinning in these ways, then you are of the world, and you are not of God. And really, the problem is, is that there's this defining line, that if we are giving in to the passions and the desires that we have for other people, we fall into this category of belonging to the world and not of God. Right? If we're following the world's passions and desires and lusts, we fall into that, that category, and we are not truly Christians, according to John. We're not in Christ. We're not in the love of God. Right? And so we can kind of see why this is important for us to understand. Like if that is where we're at, it kind of tells us where we are in standing with God. And so it's important. A second passage in this that, that kind of defines the importance of this is found in 
1 Corinthians when Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The other reason why this should matter to us is because of the type of sin it is. Right? Paul kind of says there's two different types of sins. There's sins that are committed outside the body, and it really doesn't affect who you are. Right? It's not good to do them. Right? You shouldn't sin, right? but it's not affecting your body. So if I lie, yes, it proceeds from my mouth, right? but it's affecting something outside of me. If I steal, I use my hands, but it's affecting something outside of me. But when it comes to sexual sins, it affects who you are, and it does something to you. And so Paul says we need to flee from this. Right? We need to run in the complete opposite direction. And the reason why it matters is because we have been bought with a price. And that price was the cross of Christ. We should not do things that cheapen the grace that we have been given. Uh, imagine with me that you just bought a brand new car, all right, brand new, straight off the parking lot. You brought it home. What would you do with that car? I know for me, I'd probably do everything I could to make it and keep it in pristine condition, right? I'd probably wax it every Saturday and wash it. I'd probably make sure that, that the inside was vacuumed uh, and that if my kids got in there, they took their stuff with them when they got out. I mean, I would do everything to keep the value up. What I wouldn't do is, is come home and allow my kids to take their bikes and their keys and, and scratch up the side of it, right? What we probably wouldn't do is allow our kids to come in and trash the inside and not care about it. All right? We wouldn't want to devalue a car that we just bought. But yet, when we sin sexually, it devalues the cross of Christ in a way that we would never treat our car. And, and the cross of Christ is so much more important than a brand new car. And so we need to do everything in our power to keep the grace of Christ pristine in our lives. Right? And that means fleeing from sexual immorality. Right? That means not having these desires and these lusts cheapen the cross. Well, the concubine in this story, she has fallen into infidelity. Right? She has uh, hurt her relationship with her husband. Right? She, she, by sinning and, and leaving, has broken this relationship. And that's what happens when we have these lusts and these desires and they are uncontrolled in our lives. Right? When they are, they break relationships down. Right? We see it in our world. We see it uh, in the world that they lived in. Right? It's not much different. I mean, how many Marriage relationships have broken up due to infidelity on one partner or the other or both. Right? It happens. Right? And, but there is hope in this story because even though this relationship has been broken, it doesn't mean that it can't be mended. And we read about that in the second part of verse 2 uh, through 
something. All right, the second part of verse 2 says this. After she had been there four months at her father's house, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servants and two donkeys, and, he took him into her parents, and she took him into her parents' house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. And his father-in-law and the woman's father prevailed on him to stay, so he remained there for three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So this broken relationship, it, it didn't have to remain that way. The concubine and the Levite uh, kind of get back together, okay? The concubine had left, and I can just imagine the Levite's feelings as, as she's leaving, right? Hurt, betrayal, you know, she had left him, not him leaving her, all right? Maybe even anger. But over time, over a period of four months, that, that kind of starts to heal. Those, those early emotions, uh, they kind of wane. And it's not uh, like in our day, right? We can just text whoever we want to text anytime, all right? And we have postal services. They didn't have any of that, so they probably haven't had any contact for four months. And after that period, he decides, you know what? I still love her. And he goes to her uh, and and. The NIV doesn't translate it very well. What it says that he does is he goes and he speaks to her heart. He goes and he has an intimate conversation where he asks her to come back. And and this is a a, a beautiful moment, okay? So even though this relationship had been broken by infidelity, it didn't mean that the relationship had to stay there. This relationship... uh, is mended because of forgiveness. And sometimes in our lives, we, we kind of miss this. We, we kind of miss this point of, of wanting to bring back restored relationships. And that's what God's all about, is trying to restore relationships, not just with themselves, but with each other. But sometimes we don't restore relationships with other people because we cannot forgive ourselves. Sometimes we get caught up in defining ourselves by the mistakes we've made rather than defining ourselves by who we belong to. And that's one of the biggest mistakes we can possibly do. We have to get over ourselves for a moment and forgive ourselves and remember that we belong to Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians this passage. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. You know, our mistakes that we've made in the past, they are not what defines us. Now, I would hate to be defined by a simple mistake that I made as a child, right? I'm sure I lied. I'm sure I got caught by my parents and I lied my way out of the punishment that I deserved. I would hate to be defined as a liar or a thief or any other mistakes that I made in my past. And, Jesus, and here Paul says that's not what you're defined as. You're defined as a Christian. When you are in Christ, everything that you've done in your past, it's gone. And you're new. And we have to remind, remember that in our minds here. All right? The Levite here, even though there was that broken relationship, he restores it by coming back to her and asking her to come back. And the father-in-law, when he finds out that this is what's happened, he's ecstatic. All right? In their culture, uh, if, if, some, uh, if you've given away your daughter in marriage and she comes back to you, it would have been very shaming. 
And so for having her husband come back and retake her back, he's happy about it. And so he shows his excitement by convincing the Levite to stay for three days. Don't just leave. Stay for a while. And what do they do in that three days? They eat, they drink, and they sleep. They're partying. They're, they're excited about this restored relationship that didn't seem to have hope just a couple of months before. All right, so they, they, they're excited there. Uh, the fourth day, we're told in the passage that the Levite tries to leave, and the father-in-law says, no, 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 stay again, stay again. And so it's a fourth day of revelry. Then the fifth day comes, and he tries to get him to stay, and the Levite says, I got to go. I, I got to get out of here. You know, how many days can you stand your in-laws, right? All right, that's kind of what I picture here. Okay, it's time for me to go. All right, and so the Levite, he has, probably has business to do as well. And so he goes uh, and he leaves, and that's kind of where we're going to pick the story up. And the story is going to shift from this broken relationship of individuals, the Levite and the concubine, to a broken relationship amongst Israel. All right, and the story uh, shifts in this way in verses 11 through 15. We're told that when they were, uh, as they're leaving, they're nearing the town of Jebus, and the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop in the city of of the Jebusites and spend the night. And his master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people is not Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let us try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. And so they went on, and the sun as it, uh, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. And there they stopped to spend the night, and they went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. So what we kind of see happening is, is he's leaving. Um, the town of Jebus is, is later renamed Jerusalem after David conquers it. Uh, and it's probably about a six-mile travel. And so they probably have left in the middle of the afternoon, right? Maybe two or three o'clock in the, in the afternoon. And they are heading, and they're getting to a place where it's getting, they got to find a place to stop. All right, it's not okay to just kind of camp in the wilderness. There's beasts, there's thugs. You just didn't want to do that. And so you want to be protected. And so uh, they could have stopped in this town of Jebus. And, and what's ironic here is that the uh, Levite says, no, we need to go to an Israelite place, uh, the people of God. That's where we need to stop. And it probably would have been better for him to actually stop in this non-Israelite town. All right, but he continues on and he continues for another uh, four miles or so to the town of Gibeah, uh, which is just inside the land of Benjamin. And he stops there, and, he st- and then we're told that the sun is setting and that he stops in the square. All right, and the, the square probably was like this, uh, almost like the city gates later on. All right, it would have been this place at the very entrance of the city that as people are coming in from work, they had to pass by. All right, and it would have been a place where you did your transactions, where you did all of these business things that you needed to do, probably even where judges uh, sat in courts, all right, and they, everyone would have passed by this Benjamin, his concubine, and his servant, everyone, all right, and, and that's what makes this even more interesting, because in, Eastern, in the Eastern world, hospitality is one of the most important things, all right, it's something that you did, it was natural, it was expected, all right, and when you brought people into your house, you treated them as VIPs. You fed them. You gave them a place to stay. Uh, anything bad that happened to them was a reflection of your own honor. And so it would have been very important for anybody to take this person in for the night. 
And then no one could say, oh, I didn't see him, because he was in the place that everybody passed. And yet no one is willing to take him in. And this kind of hints at this broken relationship between the people of Israel amongst their own people. I mean, he was an Israelite. They were Israelites. They should have warmly welcomed him in, yet they didn't. Now, there is one man who does, okay? In verse 16, uh, we're told that there was an older man from the hill country of Ephraim, so not even a Benjaminite, an Ephraimite, and he is living in Gibeah, and he came in from his work in the fields, and when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? And he answered, we're on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote area of the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the women, and the young man with us. We do not need anything. And verse 20, he says, you are welcome at my house, the old man says. Uh, Let me supply whatever you need, only do not spend the night in the square. And so he took him into his house, and he fed his donkeys, and after they had washed his feet, they had something to eat and to drink. Now, what's even more interesting in this hospitality business here, right, is that the Levite poignantly mentions that he has everything that he needs. He just needs a place to sleep, right? He's not going to be a burden. He has fodder for his donkeys. He has food for him and his wife and his, his servant, okay? They didn't really have to do anything except give him a place to stay, all right? But the man shows what true hospitality is, doesn't he? He says, no. You keep your stuff, I'll feed you. And he takes him into his house, and he gives him a place to sleep, and he gives him food, and he gives him everything that they need. And then something bad happens. All right? And this is going to be kind of graphic, but it's important to the story, and it's in the Bible. All right? So verses 23 to 26. So while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to him, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. I will bring them. All right. It says, look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, and so the man took his concubine, sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go, and at daybreak the woman went back to the house where her master was staying and fell down at the door, and they laid there until uh, daylight. And we find later on that she ends up dying. Very bad scene, right? The people of Israel having uncontrolled, ungodly, unchecked lusts that causes them to do things that are illegal. You know, and, and, and this is another thing that tends to happen within the man, mankind, okay? When we allow ungodly, uncontrolled lusts to play out. There's something that that is very important that we understand. Sometimes we can look back at this and say, you know what, they are terrible people. And they are. 
But sometimes we look at it blindly and say, you know what? That can never happen in our time. The UN did a study from 2010 to 2012, and in that study they found that uh, human trafficking is a $32 billion per year industry. And there's a couple of things with human trafficking. The two primary things uh, is labor, slavery, all right, what we would call labor, uh, what we would call slavery and what we think of slavery uh, is still around and still existent. But the second big one uh, is sexual exploitation of people, all right? People are trafficked from one country to another to force them to have sex with people, all right? Sexual exploitation, all right? it's estimated that there's 27 million slaves in the world today, half of them being used for sexual exploitation. Uh, One-third of all those who are trafficked are children. Uh, each year they, they're estimated that there's 1.2 million children a year who are trafficked. And most of those are not for labor. Most of those are for sexual exploitation. And what the study found by the UN was this, is that every country participates. The U.S. participates in this. What they found was that 25% of all uh, people who are in what's called the child sex tourism, these are people that go to other countries to have sex with children, 25% of those are U.S. citizens. We, it's estimated between 100 to 300 children per year in the U.S. are taken from their homes and used in sexual exploitation, with the average age being 13. The average age. Some younger, some older, most at 13. See, this, this is a major problem. And it's uncomfortable. We, we don't like to hear this. It's something that we just would rather ignore. And we look at the Old Testament, we see what they did, and what they did was despicable, but we, as a culture, are no different. We do despicable things. And we, as a church, cannot turn a blind eye to this problem. We have to stand up. See, what the people did here, and and, and as we'll see, it was all a justice problem. They were not doing what was right. And when we're talking about the exploitation of human beings for, for labor purposes or for sex purposes, it's an issue of justice. What is right and what is wrong? We cannot ignore it. We cannot say, I didn't know anything about this because they have been telling us for years now that this is happening. Uh, I saw recently, I think Mexico Public Safety even posted it, uh, where there's a sex ring from Mexico to Colombia. Even in our hometown, we have this issue. And we need to stand up and say, this is not right. And it starts with examining our lives. 
it starts with us. Right? When we look at our lives, we need to ask the question, do we have unfettered, uncontrolled lusts? Do we do things that are considered sexually immoral? And if so, we need to start by saying, you know what, I'm done with this. We need to do what Paul says, to flee immorality. Because if we cannot control ourselves, how can we stand up for what is right? We need to control ourselves, and we need to stand up for justice in this world. We need to make a stand and say, this is not how it should be. And it starts today with you looking at your life and seeing if you are doing what God has called you to do. Let's pray. Dear God, this issue is, is not a good issue to be found. Uh, sometimes it's shocking to recognize the problems in this world. Sometimes it's shocking to, to just see a bigger picture of, of problems that lust leads to. God didn't, you didn't want us to, to flee sexual immorality because you didn't want us to have fun. You wanted us to flee it because you knew the harm that comes from it. The broken relationships that results. The illegal activity that leaves people broken, hurt, dead. And Father God, I just pray that, that we can recognize that and that we can examine our lives for just a moment. We can say, God, I don't want to be in this. That God, we can turn to you. That we can be defined by who you are and what you've done for us. That we will not cheapen the grace of the cross by our actions. And I just pray, God, that, that we can be found in you in all the things that we do in privates, in secrets, as well as in public, and that we can stand for what is right in this world, that we can stand for justice. Give us the strength to do this. Give us the courage to stand for what is right. I ask this in your name. Amen.